morning, everybody. My name is Josh Jones. I'm one of the pastors here at the Vineyard, and I'm happy to be speaking to you guys this morning. If we've never met, I'd love to meet you today to get to know you. Um, I want to start off this morning by sh- sharing some jokes that I got from Van Cochran. Um, you've probably heard some of them before, so blame him. Um, so, first one, a couple decided to go to Florida to, fall, to thaw out during a particularly icy winter. They planned to stay at the same hotel where they spent their honeymoon 20 years earlier. Because of their hectic schedules, it was difficult for the couple to coordinate their travel plans. So the husband left and flew to Florida on Thursday while his wife planned to fly down the following day. The husband checked into the hotel and it was, there was a computer in his room. So he decided to send an email to his wife. However, he accidentally left out a letter in the, the um, email address and sent the email without realizing his error. Meanwhile, somewhere in Houston, a widow had just returned home from her, from her husband's funeral. He had been a pastor and sadly passed away from natural causes. And the widow decided to check her email, expecting some condolence messages from family and friends. But after reading her very first email, she screamed and fainted. The widow's daughter rushed into the room, found her mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen which read, To my loving wife, I've just arrived today. You're surprised to hear from me. They have computers here now, and you are allowed to send emails to your loved ones. Since I've just arrived, I thought I would send you an email. Everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. (laughs) Looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S. It sure is hot down here. (laughs) You probably heard that one before. All right, got a couple more. Uh, A man saved up money to attend the Super Bowl one year. It was very expensive, and he was excited to go. He arrived at his seat, and he noticed an empty seat next to him. He asked the man next to him, is this seat not taken? The man sitting next to him said, yes, it used to be my wife's seat, but she passed away. The man asked, "I'm I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry to hear this. The man, thinking of how valuable the seat was, asked the man next to him, could you have given this seat to one of your friends or relatives? The man next to him said, no. The man asked, why? The man next to him said, they're all out at the funeral. That's a bad one. These are pretty morbid. I don't know. They had the Super Bowl in it, so I had to use that one too. Okay, last one. Um, A stranger approached the pastor after a service one Sunday and said, I'd like you to pray for my hearing. The pastor, passionate about the kingdom breaking in, placed his hands on the man's ears and said a passionate, commanding prayer, ears be healed in the name of Jesus. Then he asked, how's your hearing now? Just, you know, checking in. Looking surprised, the man said, well, it's not until tomorrow. <laughs> I got court hearing, you know. I think that happened to John, actually. <laughs> no, it was um, actually John's birthday this past Friday, and so y- you can make checks payable to John and drop them in the box on your way out. Thanks for coming. Have a great day. Um, now you can applaud. No. No, 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 I'm just joking. I'm just joking. So the title of this the message this morning is Taste and See. But let me pray again um, before we jump in. Just a quick prayer. Father, thank you. Jesus, we love you, and Holy Spirit, come. We need your help. Amen. We find ourselves in an era where Christianity um, was once deeply woven into the fabric of Western culture for centuries is now a relic of the past. However, it's important to note that this shift isn't necessarily all negative. 
What may initially appear as a decline and decay often serves as the spark for a magnificent renewal and, and reformation. This may seem as an odd beginning to a message titled Taste and See, but bear with me. I Hopefully it'll make sense as we go on. Recent confessions over the last decade from prominent Christian leaders departing from their faith have caused significant dis discussion around the ideas of deconstruction of faith. And in turn, we've seen many people in my generation, some older and younger, um, exiting the church and leaving Christianity for many reasons. And a lot of them are valid reasons and understandable. I mention this not um, in criticism, but to highlight it as an indicative of some, of some deeper issues. At the same time, I believe it's a potential catalyst for change. After reflecting on this matter for a few years, I'm convinced that we, the church in the West, have adopted a version of Christianity that is fundamentally flawed at a systematic level. Maybe it's always been broken. It's plausible that these flaws have existed all along, but we are merely just obscured within the fabric of cultural Christendom. Having not been there in the past, I can't say for certain what the hearts and minds of individuals and groups were over the centuries, but especially in the last 50 years or so, we've seen some of the bad fruit, which is much too light a phrase considering that fruit. Nevertheless, they, they indicate major flaws in the praxis of our faith and teachings. What I'm saying is that I believe in Western Christianity is broken in a number of ways. We have cultural adaptation. Western Christianity has often adapted to fit within the cultural norms and values of Western society. At times, that's understandable, right? Like trying to put things in a framework for people so they can more e easily grasp it in their time and age. But tragically, that usually comes at the expense of core principles and the teachings of Jesus. Just, 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 just what happens. There's colonial leg legacy, you know, where Western Christianity has a complex, intertwined history with colonialism, imperialism, leading to devalu devaluing of people throughout cultural um, denomination, exploitation, and suppression of indigenous people. This goes all the way back to Rome, uh, conquering with the sign of the cross, right? Killing humans um, who we feel are trying to steal or stop our religious or personal freedoms. And to me, that doesn't really seem the way of Jesus. That's my opinion. It doesn't seem the way of Jesus to me. We have doctrinal divisions. The multitude of denominations and doctrinal differences within Western Christianity can lead to and has led to fragmentation and divisiveness, hindering efforts for unity and cooperation in addressing contemporary challenges. And then there's problems of individualism. Western Christianity, particularly in its Protestant forms, often emphasizes personal salvation over the big picture of God's story and joining in him joining with him in what he's doing and the family that he has, has brought us into. And, and we, you know, it, it looks like we've, we've neglected the communal responsibility and unity, and this often plays out in neglecting social justice issues with individualism. The problem, we have the problem of consumerism. We approach church like we shop, which results in churches resembling businesses, focusing on and catering to people's preferences rather than spiritual growth and people opting out of local church community for online messages from people they'll never really know this side of heaven. At some point, we've all seen and felt the weight of hypocrisy and scandal, scandals and moral failings and spiritual abuses within the Western Christian institutions and leadership have led to perceptions of hypocrisy and 
loss of credibility in the eyes of the public, and even worse, they've destroyed and ruined families and communities. And I know there's more areas where systematically things are broken and, we need to be, and they need to be looked at. And, you know, that's kind of a downer to begin. That's why I started with some jokes. But um, before you begin to schedule a, a meeting with me to defend or to tear down some other aspect of Western Christianity, let me say that it's, a, it's essential for us to recognize these critiques don't apply universally to all expressions of Western Christianity. There are many individuals and communities within Western Christian traditions who actively work to address these challenges and promote a more authentic, compassionate expression of our faith. That's why I'm glad to be part of the Vineyard Movement. We're not perfect. We're not, um, we've had some flaws in the past, but we're working towards a genuine reflection of Christ and his way of living. Additionally, Western Christianity has also contributed positively to various aspects of society, including advancements in education, social welfare, um, and promoting human rights. Let me say that in let me say this and make it clear that I believe that even if people hold a flawed expression or idea or theology, they can still be authentic people who love Jesus. And there are brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters in Christ, that doesn't excuse anyone when they're promoting a skewed picture of Jesus or actively hurting others. But the way that I act and my response to that should look different than the world. I've been guilty of holding and even promoting some of these ideas and other flawed ideas over the years, and I've been influenced and followed people have been guilty of them. And I'm not going to go deeper into all that today in any of those areas that I've mentioned where the Western church has clear issues, but I want to focus on one aspect, one major flaw that I have seen at work in the Western church and in my own life, and it's that at the very fundamental level, we've made Christianity transactional rather than relational. At a fundamental level, we've made Christianity transactional rather than relational. So in this case, I agree we should deconstruct some of our assumptions about what it means to be a follower of Christ as well as some of our practices. I've said this before, but it seems at times we can treat God a little bit like an ATM machine. Like there's God and there's us. There's the, the, the cash machine and the person wanting cash, right? There's separate, separate parties in a transaction. If we believe the right things and we do the right stuff, uh, maybe he'll do or give us what we want kind of a mindset, a transactional mindset. You know, God is primarily where we go when we need something, and that's good, but maybe there's, no, there's little or no real evidence of relationship going on. This mindset can also lead to judging God's goodness or even his existence based on how well or how poorly we perceive or think he's keeping up his end of the deal. Here's another way of saying this. It's a challenging quote from a guy named Graham Cook that I really enjoy. Um, he says, the difficulty is we're not, when we're not walking in the presence of God, our spirituality is nearly always functional, not relational. So we want God to do stuff, but we don't want to become somebody in him. We want God to do things, but we don't want him to change us. But he's all about changing us. What's confusing is that God does bless us. He promotes us. He protects us. He answers our prayers, not just us, right? It rains on the just and the unjust alike. But that's not the main point of being a Christian at all. Christianity at its core is not a formula for success or an academic pursuit or an argument or philosophy. It's not a list of rules to follow to live an abundant life. It's something that we're meant to participate in. It's the way, the truth, and life. 
It's a way of truth and life. Living connected to something bigger and better than us. We're in, a, we're in a relationship with the creator of all things, guys. He's transforming us from the inside out into more of his image and likeness. Throughout my life, there have been times where I have, I've, I've stood against the Lord. I've fought against the Lord um, when he's trying to change me. I thought, it, I thought I was comfortable where I was or I was selfish in certain areas, but fighting with the Lord on these things doesn't really work out for us well in the end, does it? At best, we become uncomfortable in our current state, or at worst, he allows us to continue our course, and it ends up with pain and brokenness and messes to clean up. Are you guys following me on that? I'm learning to press into his ability to change me in the best ways for my benefit and his glory, even if it's painful in the process. And it becomes, a, in which I become a blessing to people around me. The cool thing is that he turns my journey into a testimony of his faithfulness for others. It's not about me, it's about him and what he can do. It's his goodness and his kindness that brings us to repentance. And I'm at a place now where I'm aware, I'm aware and becoming more aware of the work that I need to do and the work that I am doing to dismantle any area of my life, my thoughts, my beliefs, my actions that don't align with the truth of Jesus and who he is. And any areas of my life that don't reflect him rightly and bring them under his kingship and allow myself to be transformed from the inside out by the Holy Spirit. It's a journey. It doesn't happen instantly or overnight. And I'm not waiting for it to happen. I'm engaging in the process in relationship. Our life with God is something that we're meant to participate in. Even the Old Testament taught us this. And now we've arrived at one of the main points of this message. You can turn or you can look on the screen. Psalm 34, verse 8. You know this one. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in him. Notice those particular metaphors, taste and see. It doesn't say study doctrines about, or argue about who's right. It's not about using spiritual gifts or how much faith we have or even the depth of our self-sacrifice. Taste and see. 1 John chapter 4 and Corinthians chapter 13 talk about, you know, God is love. Our way is love. And this love, his love, is other-centered, which means it's always about relationship. The psalmist likens this divine invitation to a culinary experience and then opens our eyes to something wonderful to behold, like the pleasure of, an, of experience when partaking in a delicious feast or at a fine restaurant. But here's the thing. I can study the menu of the finest restaurant all I want. I can even learn the recipes and be taught the techniques but I'll never know anything about what's being offered until I actually taste and see it. I must experience its awesome flavors for myself with my own taste buds. It must be, it must be ingested. It must become part of me. To experience it, I must open my mouth and take it in. Otherwise, I'll know nothing about it. I like how the Passion Translation puts it in Psalm 34, 8. It says, drink deeply of the pleasures of this God. Experience for yourself the joyous mercies he gives to all who turn and hide themselves in him. Similarly, Psalm 1611 says, You know me. You make me, you make me known the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. You make known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence, with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Friends, all these things were said under the old covenant. 
we have an even better covenant that we're in now, which was established on better promises. Christ has come to live in you. Pleasures and delight and the fullness of joy lives in you. Do you know that? That's what the book says. Pleasure and delight and fullness of joy lives in you. At our root level, our faith is not based on doctrines or arguments or even theology. Like with God, all teaching in the New Testament is primarily relational. Now, sound doctrines and theology are important things. Don't get me wrong. Think of them as guardrails that keep you from veering off the path and driving your faith over the cliff, so to speak. Nevertheless, theology and doctrines are not our life in Christ. God's word is not a textbook, it's a person. And it's in this person we find life. We find Jesus said this, the words I have spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life, John 6, 63. It's heart knowledge that surpasses head knowledge. I open my heart to Jesus' love and and his love for me, and experience joy and pleasure in his presence. And this experience opens my eyes to what's true about God, what's true about myself, and, and true about everybody else around me. Notice what the psalmist says a little earlier in the same chapter, 34, verse 5. It says, gaze upon him, join your life with his, and joy will come. Your faces will glisten with glory. You'll never wear that shame again. This is why I see at the time we're living in not as the slow and painful death of Christianity, but as the needed demolition before an upgrade. The removal of things that are being shaken, that things which cannot be shaken may remain. It's the rumblings of genuine reformation and renewal at work. Like with the restoration of of an architectural wonder, the beauty and the glory of the master's craftsmanship is being revealed underneath years of religious overlay. I think that you'll see it too when you open your heart and taste and see that the Lord truly is good. He prunes and disciplines those he loves. I believe that tasting and seeing that the Lord is good is vital to our survival and our growth. You can interchange the words tasting and seeing with hearing and knowing or being known. We get to hear and know his voice and we become known by him. We get to feel his heart and experience his goodness. In this place, we build upon the foundation of who Jesus truly is and who he's shown us, to, shown us the Father to be. We're God's children. Part of, a, part of our relational dynamic is that we talk with our Father, and he talks with us. He's not a stoic Father. He's not far away. He's not emotionally or physically drained. He's there with us. He loves us. His affections are for us. He's turned towards us. Learning to hear and know his voice requires that we spend time with him. I don't want us to fall back into a trap of individualism, um, that Christianity is all about our personal salvation, but we do have to understand there is a kingdom dynamic at play, and it's true that we can't live long uh, uh, with, you know, living off other people's experiences. We can't live very long living off of other people's experiences or their relationship with God. We have to buy oil for ourselves. We have to spend time with God for ourselves. Other people can't do it for us, guys. Can't do it for us. Now we can and should meet with God with and through our community and through loving and caring for others, and we need to practice discernment or common or common group discernment, but it's reflecting on those experiences with the Holy Spirit. You know, learning to recognize his voice speaking to us through other people and people in the past um, so that we can hear him speaking to us now. 
You have to spend time with him to be able to recognize his voice, having conversations, asking him questions, letting him ask us questions. Jesus modeled this for us. He spent alone time with his father every day. He knew his father's voice. John pointed this out last week. Jesus said, those who belong to him know his voice. How do sheep know the voice of the shepherd? Because they hear it every day throughout the day. In order to lead a flock, the shepherd walks in front of the sheep and uses his voice to guide them. The shepherd has specific calls and the sheep, you know, to, to tell them to stop, to run, to turn, to move forward. Over time, the sheep learn to recognize the voice of the shepherd and learn to trust him and he lays down his life for them when there's danger. Maybe you've seen this video, maybe we've played it before, but it's a visual that shows people, um, different, different people trying to call sheep, a herd of sheep, but they don't respond until the master actually calls them. So go ahead and play that video. <laughs> one more time. Oh, one is. a cool representation. And it's the same in our relationship with God, learning to hear his voice, learning to recognize it, learning to hear it and trust it and follow it. There's something that I found to be true. If we don't spend much time dialog dialoguing with God in our, or practice listening to him, it might be hard to recognize his voice, especially in the midst of chaos or overwhelming circumstances. It's hard to, to recognize his voice when we're overwhelmed by those things. It's a, real, it's a relational, dynamic dialogue, conversations, listening. Have you ever had a friend and, you know, you, the most of your relationship is that person talking and you don't really get a word in? Love those people. But, you know, like, you know, those friends, they're awesome. Um, if I never one think about this, I, I was thinking about this the other day. If I never once told my son I love him, um, you know, if I never tell him I love him any time throughout his life, when he grows up, do you think he's going to question my love for him? Of course he is. He may examine my actions um, over the years, and perhaps he'll determine if I had love for him based on how he interpreted my actions. But if he never heard me say the words, he'd probably struggle with knowing that I loved him. Now, let me, now let's say he grew up and he, hearing that I loved him, and he experienced it in my actions. But as he gets older, he's busy. He doesn't hear that I love him every day. He has other voices speaking to him, other things, and when he finds himself in a place of needing to hear that he's loved, he has a few options. He can listen to the voices around him, or he can try to recall the times he heard and felt my love for him. 
Or better yet, he can reach out to me and hear it again. Or even better yet, I find a way to tell him every day, even in his adult life, despite his busyness. Or even better yet, we talk every day and he hears it every day. I'm not God, so I'm not going to require that of my son um, when he grows up. But I will let him know that I will be available and that I will always love him. Though it's not a perfect example, this is similar to some of the ways we live in our relationship with God. Another problem is that sometimes we get into this weird mode of thinking that God is like playing games with us, that he goes silent on us, or he only talks to us if we talk to him, and, um, or he only talks to other people, but he doesn't talk to us. God is a be- better father than any of our fathers. He continuously finds ways to speak to us in which we can hear. He knows uh, uh, the language of our hearts. He has shown us the greatest way possible that he loves us. He continues to show us with faithfulness and kindness. His covenant of grace extends beyond anything we could ever do. Many times there are voices that speak loudly to us. And if we spend enough time listening to them, it's like standing next to a big speaker at a heavy metal concert. Um, You know, our ears get shot and we can't hear the still, small voice. We think it needs to be some dynamic, loud thing to happen for God to be God's voice when he's already done the loudest thing possible. It continues in that constant voice that's unchanging in its love for us. Many people want to grow and grow in their walk and their relationship with Jesus and grow in their Christ-likeness. The number one thing that they desire is to hear him more, to recognize his voice, to follow his voice. I desire this as well. I, I want to know him. I want to be known by him. I want to hear him more. I want to experience him I want to recognize his voice better in every situation. I want to follow and obey what he says. I want to be known by him. I want him to know the deep parts of me. So I have to ask myself a a set of simple questions, honest questions, when this desire comes up in me or when I find myself frustrated or lost or even entertaining lies. Questions like, have I I been listening or entertaining other voices? Have I been living lately on someone else's intimacy with Jesus? I have been obedient to the last thing you told me to do. Here's some big ones I want to focus on today. I've been reading the Bible. When I have been reading the Bible, is it, what have I been reading it for? Has it been for head knowledge or a way to grow in relationship? Have I been allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to me through the words of Scripture in ways that point to Jesus and bring me into more of his life? God loves speaking to us through Scripture. Some of the most important things God ever said, he made sure his friends wrote them down, and then he preserved them throughout the ages for us. He cares about scripture, and if you want to grow in hearing and recognizing his voice and sharing words with other people, read the Bible. He speaks the same words over us today. You realize that Jesus, um, in his ministry, he quoted and spoke the words of the Torah in pretty much every message that he gave. You realize that? In every message he gave, he was quoting something that was already said, you know, or already written. And, and he, 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 you know, it was the same words hundreds of years ago or thousands of years prior, but the clarity, the fresh understanding that he gave to those things was, was powerful, right? It, it confounded the wise of the, of the day. God loves to speak, and he wants us to be filled with the things he's already made clear by writing them down for us. But he doesn't stop there. The same Holy Spirit that was with Jesus now lives in us and breathes upon the scriptures and makes them fresh bread for us today. The last portion of the message this morning, I wanted to transition to sharing a simple practice with you. Now, I know that 
a practice doesn't sound like a relational word. It sounds kind of transactional, I know, but let me tell you that as you begin to put this practice into play and as you, if, as you keep at it, you encounter the Lord like never before. And this practice will become a pleasure. I promise it will become a pleasure. Taking pleasure in our relationship with the Lord is what's going to fuel us for our life. It's a simple practice that can be used to encounter God and used again and again to grow in recognizing his voice. And it's the practice of encountering God through biblical meditation. If you've spent much time with me, you've probably guessed where I'm going with this. I love it. I can't do it enough. If this is new to you, you might be asking, why should we meditate on the Bible? Why should I meditate on the Bible? You know, growing up and as a young believer, I got this worldview that like meditation was bad, typically bad. That meditation was something that was done in Eastern religions, that it was occultic or something you should never do, that it was an emptying process. Well, first I want to address the difference between biblical meditation and those kinds of meditations. First of all, biblical meditation is about filling yourself with the word, with Jesus. Not just words in the book, but Jesus himself. It's about filling yourself with the word, Christ. Those Eastern kinds of meditation are all about emptying yourself, and this is a very different thing than that. When God brings up meditation in the Bible, which is, which is a word that the Bible uses, that God uses in the Bible, he uses with Joshua, in Joshua 1.8, he says to Joshua, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate it in it day and night. Now, this is the very first instruction that we have in the Bible about what to do with the Bible. This is the first instruction we have. Moses wrote it, right? And then he gives it to the leaders and gives it to Joshua. And then Moses dies. And, and so Joshua's taken into the, the promised land. And this is the thing that God says to do with the scriptures that have just been written down. Many times when we're first saved, we get a Bible and we say, okay, what am I supposed to do with this thing? I know I should read it, but it doesn't seem to work very well to read it you know, in order from front to back. It's a little boring, and I don't really get it. Well, God actually says in the Bible to Josh, look, look at his first instructions. Here's what you do. Meditate on it day and night. I think it's interesting because Joshua is not a priest who's going to spend all day in, in the temple or in the tent all the time. He's not going to have a lifestyle of that. Not that, not that lifestyle of meditating necessarily. He's not talking about meditating on it only as a focused prayer on it for hours on end, but as a way of engaging God all the time in whatever he's doing. In fact, he says, Joshua, this is how you're going to prosper in life. I found that you can meditate on Scripture day and night regardless of what you're doing because it's so simple. We, you know, we make things so complicated. We, we make them hard. We, you know, a 12-part teaching series and all that, but the word meditation, the biblical word in the Hebrew language, simply means to mumble over and over again. Now, how easy is that? God makes it so easy. He says, Joshua, take this book. It's incredibly valuable, but you're not going to understand it necessarily right away. And so just mumble over it again and again. Just take these words and repeat them over and over again in your head and in your heart until it sinks in. The word meditation, the biblical word in the Hebrew language, simply means to mumble over and over again. Scripture says in Hebrews chapter 5 that the book is either milk to you or it's solid food. If it's milk, you're just going to take it and you're going to swallow it. If it's solid food, you're going to chew on it for a little while. And that's a perfect picture of meditation, taking one verse, one chapter, or even one phrase in a verse and just chewing on it over and over again. Throughout Scripture, the regular instruction is to meditate on it day and night. 
The book of Psalms is the favorite book of the entire Bible. If you pull all the people who are like the men and women of God in Scripture, you'll find that they're quoting Psalms and loving Psalms all the time. It's their go-to book, and I think it's intentional by the Lord. What's interesting about the book of Psalms is they're all songs, right? They're meant to be sung, not just spoken. They're simple. You just take those phrases and sing them over and over again in your head on your way to work and, you know, whatever you're doing. Psalm 1-2, David says this. He says, Blessed is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked or stands in the path of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in this law he meditates day and night. So get into it. Get into the book. Do, do what the book says to do with the book. As you begin to do it, you'll find it easy and your life will be full of encounters and interchanges with God all day long and every day. As you meditate, there's five elements or modes I want to encourage you to try out and practice. And this comes from a good friend, Kirk Bennett. He's been like a spiritual mentor to me throughout my life and over the years. And this, this style of meditation is one of the greatest gifts that I've been given in my life. So the five modes of meditation, you probably know this. If you've heard me talk about it before, read it, write it, say it, sing it, pray it. Read it, write it, say it, sing it, pray it. The first element is reading it. Why should we read the Bible? Here's the reason why you should read the Bible. Because it's written. Read it because it's written. Because it exists as a writing. That's why we should read it. I know a lot of, you know, a lot of people died to get it into your hands. A lot of people died to get that book into your hands. I found many times we're taught to read the Bible in a, you know, the whole Bible in a year, which is not a bad thing, or read the whole book or chapter entirely, and that's actually a great and important thing to do for context. We should read the Bible like that. But we get so caught up in study or progressing, you know, going through it, that we fail to read and reread a verse over and over again until God speaks multiple times through it to us. I also found that in doing some of those previous styles of reading, I read so fast, this is me, I read so fast or I skip I tend to miss out on the little things that are given in there. So I want to learn to read it in a way that I'm tasting and seeing that God is good in it. So I'm going to camp out in one one section for a while. Reread the same verse or the same verses over and over again and meditate on it and soak in it. I want you to try that out. I want you to try it out, read it, and read it again, and read it again in another translation. And also when you read it, just don't read it um, silently in your head. Read it out loud your voice out loud, coming out of your voice. I know this was, you know, this was the way that it was passed down throughout the years, not just the Old Testament, but even the New Testament. There's instructions to read it out loud. Over and over, Paul says in his writings, those letters to the churches, he said, read this. He says, read this to the church of Colossae, the church of Ephesus, the church of Thessalonica. He says, read this letter to the saints. It was written for all the saints to read, be read to them. Back in the days when Paul was writing, um, not everyone was a reader, so some people, you know, it had to be read to them. So this is ongoing process of reading to the letters to get them spread throughout the churches. Even, even Paul writing to the Colossians says, take this letter and then read it to the church at Laodicean church. And so it's, you know, it's got to be read to them as well. So it wasn't just like one, you know, one letter to one small group of elders somewhere. It was, it was to be read over and over again by all the people and to all the people. You know, if you're a parent, you're reading a book to your children, and if it's a book that they like, how many times are you going to read that same book? Like, yeah, so many times, right? Every day or night, probably multiple times a day, right? Like, for a year, probably, right, if they love that book or more. 
Do that with scripture. Read it to yourself over and over again. This is why we have a book. It wasn't meant to be read once and then you know, discarded. We have the book to be read and reread. The Bible is unique. It's different than any other book that's written that's out there. The Holy Scriptures combined with the breath of God, magnifying the word of God made flesh. How often do you need that breath in your life? Every day, multiple times a day. It's simple, but reading it over and over again in these small ways, it's amazing how many times you can read a verse and hear different thing, things each time you read it. Or sometimes you read it over and over again for an hour and then suddenly God begins to talk. It's written in God's language. It's the language of God and it's a great value, so read it. Second one is write it. Writing the scripture. Now many of us would say, why should we write it? It's already written. Well, first of all, there's also many texts telling us in the scripture to write the scripture. Many specific examples of God telling them to write it down. When this happens, it's, there's no printing press, right? There's, there's no copiers and there's no books that are widely distributed. So when you're writing the text, it's because there's no other text there to write. So you're passing it down. You have to have the original copy or you have to make copies of it, right? That's how it was passed down. There's an interesting passage when God speaks to Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17. He says, Moses, one day there's going to be kings. There's not kings right now. And I don't want there to be kings, but there's going to be kings <laughs> and, the, and the people of Israel. And here's what the king's supposed to do. He's to sit on the throne and take the book from the priests, and then he's supposed to write it out. That's what the king's supposed to do. Why couldn't he just have the priest read it to them? Why couldn't he just get one and read it himself? There's a dynamic that happens when you write the scriptures. And God wanted it to get into their fabric, woven into them. My friend Dee, Kirk's wife, has a favorite activity that she does in her meditation of handwriting out an entire book of the Bible. She has inspired me to do it over the years. He's literally handwritten out the book of Isaiah, the book of Revelation, the book of Daniel multiple times. And if you think, well, why do that when you can just pick it up and read it? There's something about writing the scripture that changes people. And she'll tell you when she wrote the book of Isaiah, if she felt like she knew Isaiah, like she spent that time and it was like God show, opened a window to show her what I, Isaiah was like and what he was experiencing. And so she said it was so profound. And so this writing of the book, and, the, and of course, those are long examples, right, of writing, but even short examples, writing a verse or writing a chapter out over and over again, this repetition brings about a popping out of the word because scripture, again, like no other book, is living and active, and it'll affect you when you take time and spend time in it. You'll find out that writing a chapter or a verse every morning or phrase over and over will pop it out in your life the next few days or weeks, and it will be so profound how God takes the scripture and contextualizes it in your life. The third mode is say it. Revelation 1 provides a double blessing for both the person who declares the word and those who hear it. So again, speaking it out loud in your own ears, you'll get a double blessing just reading the book. That's pretty, that's pretty crazy. The saying or the speaking of scriptures is so fundamental because it's the word of God. And we have the privilege to be oracles of God, of the word of God, by simply speaking the scripture. And I found that even before I speak it to other people, I need to, you know, say it to myself. Right? I need to soak in it myself, speak it, say it out loud to myself over and over again. And as I do that, and I spend time with the Lord in it, I say it back to him. It's almost as though he's saying, okay, say it again, say it again, say it again. Now ask me a question about that. I'll ask that question and I'll write it out. 
And I, and I say it again, and I'll ask another question, and he asks me questions, and faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. What happens is there a, there's a dynamic thing that happens with faith as I say words over and over again, and, and God speaks to me through them. The fourth mode is singing, singing the scriptures, especially in the context of Psalms, adds, faith, adds a faith dimension. Singing changes the tone and brings out the heart of scripture. It transforms the word into a song, making it a powerful element in meditation. Singing words of God back to God brings forth a new prophetic songs that rhyme with what's already been tested and found to be true. I could say a lot more about singing, but, but moving on to the last one, pray it. Praying the scriptures involves reading or reciting specific prayers mentioned in the Bible, such as the Lord's Prayer, right? Or the prayer in Numbers chapter 6, or the apostolic prayers in the New Testament, for starters. It's a form of dialoguing with God, opening up the opportunity for revelation and understanding. In meditation, you know, you're re repeating a phrase over and over, or a verse over and over again, or a chapter over and over again. But if you pray it as part of your meditation, you're intentionally engaging God and it sets you up to hear from it. So in conclusion, these various modes of meditation, reading it, writing it, speaking it, singing it, praying it, praying the scriptures often, or offer practical ways to engage in God's word, to taste and to see it, to hear it, to know it, and experience God encountering him through scriptures becomes a pleasure, and we enjoy it. And, and you begin to do that again and again over time. You don't want to leave it. It's like, man, I got to go do this thing, but I really just want to spend time. And I, okay, I'll take that with me. I'll just continue to say that in my heart. You know, I'll continue to speak that out loud. And I encourage you to try these different modes of meditation. Do one and then do it again. Mix it up. And when you get stuck, try out a different one. To finish today, I want you to turn in your Bibles or on your devices to Psalm chapter 16. I felt like God wants to speak this over us today. Maybe I'll do a message on it in the near future, but what I, what I want you to do is have this in front of us as we go into worship, um, the first worship song, and I want you to meditate on it. Try one of those five modes. Like, try it out. Um, read it, write it, say it, sing it, pray it. If you need copies of the song, I have them printed out on that little table near the door back there. Um, I have it printed out in the ESV and the Passion Translation, which is my favorite paraphrase version. And so worship band, go ahead and come on up. And, you know, as you, as you go through that, just pick out one verse. You don't have to do the whole, whole psalm. Pick out one verse or one phrase in there that stands out to you and just meditate on it as we do this first worship song. And, um, let me pray as we go into worship. Now I'm going to pray just right from, from the psalm here. So preserve us, O God, for in you we take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are our Lord. We have no good apart from you. You respond by calling us your own, your excellent and noble ones, calling us your children, your saints, your holy lovers, in whom is all your delight. God, let us see each other how you see us. Let those words, those things that you speak of us sink in. Keep us from following the way that leads us to self, that leads us to lesser loves and lesser gods. You alone are our inheritance, Lord. You are our prize our pleasure, our portion. You hold our destinies and our timing in your hands. Your pleasant path leads to pleasant places. And we're overwhelmed by the privileges that come with following you. 
Bless the Lord. Bless the Lord, you majestic ones. We join together in praising you, God. We set you before us because you are near. You're not shaken, and we will not be shaken. We will, do, we will dwell securely in your love, and so our hearts will be glad. You make known to us the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy, and at your right hands are pleasures for, forevermore. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.